1: The Guardian.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee.
1: And me, Sean Kane.
0: In this episode, we look at memoirs from two of our own. Guardian columnist Rick Samada discusses I Never Said I Loved You, which brings the humour Guardian readers would expect to an account of his struggles with a history of depression, eating disorders, self harm, and even sexual abuse. And the Observer art critic, Laura Cumming, has been examining family photographs to get to the bottom of a mysterious incident when her mother was kidnapped from a beach in Lincolnshire. But first... That's the sound of the 2019 Booker shortlist, all 3,000 pages of it. It's the longest shortlist of recent years, even longer than the epic selection of 2015, when Marlon James's 688-page A Brief History of Seven Killings triumphed over Hanya Yanagihara's 736-page A Little Life. So... In order of page count, Sean, mm. which novels have made the cut this year? Yeah,
1: we're not doing quality. We only care <laughs> about page counts. So, the shortest book uh, this year is Elif Shafak's 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, which is only 320 pages. Only? Yeah, and then uh, Keyshot by Salman Rushdie at 416 pages. The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, 419. Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo is 464. An Orchestra of Minorities by Chigozi Obioma is 528. And at a whopping 1,020 pages, Lucy Ellman's Ducks Newburyport.
0: But the book everyone is talking about is Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, which was only supposed to be published today. But then what happened, Sean?
1: Yeah, so um, obviously this is the big book event of the year. It was under a heavy embargo for the 10th of September. As has been revealed, the publisher and the book of judges have been under quite regular hacking attempts to try and get copies of the manuscript before it came out. And so the book has been under really heavy security. So bookshops that have received stock before the 10th of September were asked to keep it in a safe place, not to take photos of the boxes. It's kind of Harry um, Potter-esque, it's, it? it's Harry Potter level, you know. Also, we have an extract that ran in Guardian Review, and so we had a lot of security around that as well. Definitely wasn't handled like a regular piece of journalism. There were a lot of people involved. And then uh, Amazon sent 800 copies out early. There you go. (laughs) Here's your (laughs) book. That kind of messed with everyone's schedule a bit. So the, the embargo for the world is still 10th of September, which is, of course, today when the podcast is going out. But it is certainly not the case that everyone's getting it at the same time and this has caused quite a lot of angst because uh, in in normal circumstances if a bookshop was to do that and let a few copies go of a heavily embargoed book what protocol usually is is that the publisher would then deny them access to shipments for future books on publication day so they miss out on the first day sales because first day sales can be quite important with amazon you can't really do that they're sort of too big to punish so amazon's come out with a very contrite statement saying we're very sorry. It was a technical error. Technical error. Not our fault gov. Penguin Random House called it retailer error. <laughs> you know, regardless, eight hundred people in the, in America had the books before a week before everyone else did. So I, I don't think it really detracts from it. I think it kind of adds to the drama of the whole thing and certainly we don't get books that often that people are so excited about that this is actually an issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's clearly much anticipated. What's it yeah. like?
1: Well, yeah, yes, so I've, I've read it, which is <laughs> yeah. very cool. So I was sent my copy a little bit earlier than expected because of what happened with Amazon. I don't want to ruin it for anyone, so don't sort of worry about me spoiling anything. I'm just going to say I really enjoyed it. I think... The pacing is great. There have been cases with Atwood in the recent years um, where she's got this brilliant mind for sort of picking apart things in our world and putting them in versions of her own world. Her world building is sort of second to none, really, I think. And the problem has been, I think, traditionally in some of her other books, that when she has been world building and trying to examine situations in our world, she hasn't had the necessary consistency of detail there to really build a world that felt truly detailed and real and applicable to our own. That it sort of veered into a speculative then didn't feel grounded enough. Applicable to our reality. Yeah. She has this sort of tendency to create technologies and create medicines and create all sorts of things for her books. And sometimes these are successful and sometimes they're a little bit clumsy. I would say with the Testaments that she is building upon a world that she has obviously been thinking about for about 30 years. Obviously, Handmaid's Tale came out in 86. And the, why Handmaid's Tale worked was because her world building was rooted in a social hierarchy that she had built. And it was a fabulous social hierarchy because you can live on in our world and understand it. You can see the realities of it but also it's slightly heightened. It's just that little tweak to the left. It, it's our world but, you know, skewed. She's still got that, and she hasn't got the clumsiness that has existed in some of her other books so, over the last 10 years. So
0: it's a worthy successor to The Handmaid's Tale. Do you think it'd be a worthy yes. winner as well?
1: I'm not entirely sure about that. I think it is an achievement. I think it's really pleasing that it is as good as it is. And I think she's saying a lot about our world now.
0: And one that measures up to The Handmaid's Tale as as well. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And But I, I don't necessarily think it's the perfect book, mm. even whether it's the best written book on that shortlist or even if it's the greatest achievement on that shortlist. I'm saying all this with reservation because I'm still getting through two of them. And when I say getting through, you know that one of them is Lucy Ellman's Doug's <laughs> New Report, <laughs> which is hefty to say the least. But the achievement of that book... Of the Lucy Ellman book is remarkable. I'm astounded that I'm reading it, quite frankly, if anyone knows how many times I've given up on Ulysses. (laughs) (laughs) I'm enjoying this book is a real delight for me.
0: So Dux at the moment is the one in the lead?
1: Yeah, and I haven't even finished it, but I'm kind of amazed by it while I'm reading it. And with the Outward, I was entertained and excited and moved by it. But I'm kind of more excited about the possibilities of The Almond.
0: Well, we shall see um, what happens when the winner is announced in October. But for now, from fiction, let's move to non-fiction. The columnist Rick Samada needs no introduction for Guardian readers who've been chuckling for years at his Inspector Gadget series in which he reviews kitchen appliances including the Lucky Iron Fish, the Rotimatic and the Uni Pro Pizza Oven. With trademark humour, Rick's memoir, I Never Said I Loved You, reveals a whole new side – a history of child abuse, self-harm, eating disorders and depression.
2: When he came to the studio, he began with a brief reading. I stare at some turds and think about existence. Sunlight glints off the water that uncoils slowly through this park next to the street where I grew up. In the distance, young people laugh among themselves. A pigeon struts the grass defiantly, while in the water a duck stands ankle-deep, looking at a confusion of twigs, A hurricane survivor surveying the wreckage of his home. I'm not sure if ducks have ankles. How does one survive a life? For some reason, this is the thought that has been pressing itself upon my mind since I made a decision to write about, well, my mind. Specifically, the way it goes wrong. It's not a welcome question. All I want to do is set down how this particular problem feels, the tangible effects it has had, and what has helped. Even that's hardly straightforward, akin to walking face-first into thick smoke, hoping the fire will become more clearly visible. A relationship with depression has been the longest, most intimate, and yet opaque I've ever known. It's always been the two of us. A miracle we've stayed together so long. The key to any good relationship is knowing where the other is coming from, but this has always been a great mystery to me. Where does this painted black, chicken-licking shit come from? Was I born with a black frame of mind, or did I adopt it? Strange thing to be a puzzle to yourself.
1: Rick had the most marvellous origin story of having gone from working on the phones at The Guardian to being one of the most beloved writers working here, most prominently with his hilarious series of reviews of kitchen gadgets and currently his reviews of wellness experiences. But as his memoir, I Never Said I Loved You, reveals, there is a lot more going on before answering phones at The (laughs) Guardian. Rick, welcome.
2: There was a lot less going on before that. <laughs> <laughs> in some
1: ways. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on in that not a lot going on. <laughs> exactly. um, your memoir has the dubious honour of being the one book this year that made me gag and cry on the same page. So congratulations. I'm taking about Page Thank 104 you. if anyone wants to feel sick. It, this is a really touching thing about your book, how willing you are to sort of own up about how you feel about yourself. I think it's one of the most sad things in the world to read when you see how much someone doesn't even not like something about themselves but really hates themselves. And so the part I'm referring to is an instance of self-harm that you described involving some sandpaper. How did you decide that you were actually going to do this and you were going to tell everyone about this? Because the picture I get from the book is that you hadn't really talked to very many people at all about this and now you're telling everyone.
2: Yeah, no half measures. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's... I mean, the book is full of secrets and things I've never told my closest friends, my family, you know, no... I mean, I've told partners, but really, that's about it. Yeah, it's stuff that comes from the very deepest part of me. And I thought, when I was offered the chance to do a memoir, I wrote an article, which was sort of quite uplifting and touched people, and I, so I got offered to write a book. And I, I was given a year, and I spent a year trying to write something that was similarly fun, but it sort of had a pre-packaged idea a sort of uplifting narrative built into it. And it. It didn't go deep enough. It wasn't raw enough. And I thought, I'm not really doing this properly. And so I had only done about two chapters after a year. And I just felt like I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself because I knew I wasn't telling the whole truth. There's all these parts of ourselves that we just keep hidden. And even when we're being confessional, which I think is quite in vogue at the moment, lots of people on Instagram telling you about their their problems. I always feel like there's a sheen where it's not the real Truth, it's like a confession light, <laughs> where it's an accessible form of how I feel about myself. And I thought, if you have any sort of platform or an opportunity, you know, most people don't have a chance to tell their story. It's a real privilege. And I thought, why well, owe it to be anyone that feels left out of that conversation, that, or that feels that their particular depth of an extremity of feeling is not being shared or spoken to? I wanted to ally myself with them and and let them know that, yeah, I'm one of those broken. Dirty, ashamed people, and that is still a part of me.
1: You say, you know, there is more than ever in terms of this confessional air to writing that, you know, whether it's Instagram captions or if it's Mm. memoirs, we do see a lot of memoirs written by young people, most often driven by who they are as opposed to their ability to write. With topics like this, your book is a really stark reminder of the limitations of language and how hard you must have to work to be able to convey the depths of that feeling whereas for most people it is that they might be reaching for the right words but they're not necessarily getting them and that's when you're left with that sort of superficial I'm airing out all my dirty laundry and it just sort of feels Mm. almost self-exploitative in a way. This kind of made me feel very worried. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Um,
2: I think, yeah, I think there's an inherent prettification to language especially if you know how to use it a bit and actually to go beyond that and acknowledge that there are... You know, I was trying to write about things that can't be contained in language, which is arguably the same as a religious text, if that's not a, um, <laughs> a vainglorious thing to say, but it's, it's the ineffable and you're trying to... At some points you have to acknowledge that language falls away, but this is a, a sort of stab at capturing how it falls away and the feeling of that furious blankness underneath language. So when I was writing, I really wanted to put people... Inside the feeling of depression or anxiety or a panic attack or self harm or or being on the end of racist abuse, you know, I wanted them to feel that rather than just describe it because I thought, yeah, there's a sort of limit to description. I saw quarantine myself and I moved back into my mum's house and uh, I stopped speaking to people and deleted everything off my phone and I just wrote from morning until I couldn't see at night. It's quite bad for my mental health now I think about it. <laughs> I, I, I can kind
1: of imagine. <laughs> yeah,
2: I quit working. I couldn't do a, even a weekly column. I thought I can't mentally shift between these two things even though it doesn't sound like much work but I needed to totally immerse myself in those old feelings and that was really quite dramatic but I wanted to represent them honestly. And then the hard part came which is then trying to package it and make it fun. <laughs>
1: yeah. Did that actually have to be a deliberate step for you? Did you read back what you'd written and go on? Yes, it's full of feeling, but I need to also have humour here for the people that obviously a lot of people will be picking up your book because they know you for all the fun stuff and all the light stuff and the Yes,
2: and I really wanted to be sort of bear and... trap for them. Just really,
1: <laughs> Surprise! Yes, <yeah>,
2: now you're <laughs> in a pit in the forest and no one's going to find you There the spikes. No, it, it was for them, but I thought when we share our experience and when we read about it, it's always couched in such earnest to be honest, quite depressing terms, necessarily. And, you know, life is more complicated than that. I wanted to be true to those difficult, raw feelings, but I also wanted to capture confusion and porniness and sadness and joy and, you know, the whole of life's multiplicity and and have that be in the book because that's what a memoir is for me. It's, you know, it's the feeling of a life and I feel all those things just as much as I feel grief and anger and paranoia and self-loathing. You know It's all there, it's all sort of dialed up. I wanted to have it all in there. So it would have been another sort of lie to have it just be difficult, hard-going and and raw. And also, I mean, humour is a, a rawness. It's that spontaneous, vital connection. There's that quote, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. And I really wanted to connect with people with this, uh, and I always have with in writing. So I knew it had to be funny, and I wanted it to have a kind of quite adventurous, buccaneering spirit, because when you're writing about depression it can get bogged down quite easily and i wanted to be an accessible book that anyone could read and have it be surprising in all sorts of ways and raw and funny and and bleak because that's how i feel on an hour to hour basis
1: <laughs> pretty pretty early on into the book you do you do start with child abuse can you talk about the decision to reveal that in particular to the world because that struck me as something that very few people in your life must have known about did you think that perhaps you could have written the book and talked about, obviously, the sort of existential anxiety that seemed to exist before the child abuse happened. Was it very hard?
2: It was so impossible. I still look at the book and I can't believe I've written it. Yeah, that was the thing. After a year, I I realised I was trying to write a dishonest book because I didn't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. That's the thing we don't talk about. You know, It's the part of yourself that you hide from even the people that, that are closest to you and see you and love you. And so after a year, I realized I was trying to, I was writing a dishonest book because I wasn't, I was trying to talk about my mental health and the stuff that makes me and that's the thing that's made me, sadly. Yeah. Because it happened when these childhood abuse, it stunts your development and it, it unravels you as you age and grow and, and it has all these sort of long-term effects and yeah, it has effects on your memory and your cognitive processing abilities and your your dreams and your, the way you've think and it's everything it's part you know my, my brain is my personality so and that's been formed in this kind of cauldron of trauma so I couldn't honestly write about my particular depression without writing in about that in some detail and I knew I'd have to talk to people about it first and my friends would be finding out about it and my mother in particular didn't know about it I knew there would be very complicated feelings for her around it all of that was in the book. So it was a decision I didn't want to have to make, but I knew it was the only way I could write the book and be at all not full of self-loathing at the end of it. And again, to connect to people, because this isn't talked about and I think is actually a huge, however many in five or ten children get it, but actually those are the only children that report it. Yeah. And I think the actual statistic is far, far higher. I think, it's a, I think sexual abuse is a huge... Sinkhole under our country, and it's sort of sucking people down, and and we just not, we don't talk about it. So I thought, when well, I've got a voice that people seem to like, and I've got an opportunity with a book, and someone has to go first. You know, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, and ever hope I have to do because it was so traumatic, and I really had to go back into old, very old feelings that I hadn't properly processed, and try and think about them, and uh, make my home with them, and try and understand them and that was a thing I didn't really want to do, I wanted to close that door and never walk through it again but I had to open it and, and live in that room for a while which was, which was very hard but what I didn't anticipate is how healing it would be to do that and to, well to, to stay the metaphor to stay in that room for a while and then realise I could walk out and this time yeah. I was in control of, of walking out of that room and closing the door and it was mine, I owned the whole building again you know, of my interior life I think it's already touched a few people and people get in touch that I'd never have expected to have suffered similar things and it's a real humbling thing when you realise it's all around you and people that you think you know, you don't know this central fact about them. It's been really moving to me, so I'm glad I wrote about
1: that. And you talk about, actually, the power of writing and what it gave you, that you found solace in being able to write things and you did also call it a divine pretension... (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it it is soon after the book but do you feel changed at all by having written it and the process of having written it
2: I feel it's aged me (laughs) I've been sort of keeping in all this age (laughs) now. Like I've opened myself and it's all like the portrait in the attic is just on my face now Um, (laughs) I feel like it is slightly too soon but I did feel a huge grief (laughs) after I'd finished it and it's this huge hollowing out and emptiness I mean, there are, not everything's in the book. There are things I've kept for myself. But I've given a lot of myself. And it was very tough. And, you know, it was very lonely. And I had this two years, really, of feeling increasingly isolated and desperate and panicked. And it was very alone. And then when a book comes out, everyone gets in touch and says, oh, this is brilliant. You must be so proud. You must be really happy. And, no, you're a sort of wrung out dishcloth of a man and grief stricken. Yeah, and I think that's sort of a necessary part of it. But you're once again you're totally at odds with every, everyone and sort of hoopla of it.
1: I mean, you can almost map the book on the kubler Ross model. That like you could say it's <laughs> sort of denial, and you know, anger, and yeah. ends on acceptance. And you are left with the idea that perhaps you are in a much better space, certainly compared to earlier uh, parts of your life. But perhaps at the end of it, that, that the self reflection has been useful in some way.
2: Yes, useful, and I think there's also an end to it, which is good, because you can stay in that space too long. But the key there is comparable. I think you're right. It's When you look back, you try and have some perspective by looking back at yourself in previous incarnations, you realise, I still struggle with this stuff, and I still think about death all the time, and I still don't particularly like myself, but I, I'm aware I have some abilities, and people like me, and there's all these other things I can focus on now, and those keep me afloat. And before, I didn't really have... That surety of myself, I just had the darkness and the self-doubt and the, the crippling loneliness. <laughs> so yeah, I'm doing much better now. <laughs> Rick Samada,
0: "I Never Said I Loved You" is published by Headline, and we'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Guardian Books Podcast. Earlier, we heard from Rick Samada about his memoir, I Never Said I Loved You. In On Chapel Sands, Laura Cumming tells how her mother was kidnapped from a Lincolnshire beach when she was only three. Her disappearance was a family mystery for years, but when Laura began to investigate, she found the local community knew far more than anyone had been letting on. When she came to the studio to talk to Claire Armentstead, she started with a reading.
3: This is how it began and how it would end on the long, pale strand of a Lincolnshire beach in the last hour of sun, the daylight moon small as a kite in the sky. Far below, a child of three was playing by herself with a new tin spade. It was still strangely warm in that autumn of 1929, and she'd taken off her plimsolls to feel the day's heat lingering in the sand beneath her feet. Short fair hair, no coat, blue eyes and dress to match. That was the description later given to the police. She had come out of the house that afternoon and along the short path to the beach with her mother, Mrs Vida Elston. They had already been there for some time, with biscuits in an old tartan tin, digging and sieving the sand. The tide was receding when they arrived the concussion of waves on the shore gradually quietening as the day wore on. By now the sea was almost half a mile in the distance. In this lull, on their own familiar beach and so comfortingly close to home, Vida must have let her daughter wander free for a moment, for she did not see what happened next. Someone moved swiftly across the beach and began talking to the little girl someone she perhaps knew because no sounds were heard as they coaxed her away. One minute she was there, barefoot and absorbed, spade in hand. Seconds later, she was taken off the sands at the village of Chapel St Leonard's, apparently without anybody noticing at all. Thus was my mother kidnapped.
4: So, Laura... That is an extraordinary opening. It's an opening which hints at one side of this, which is that it's a mystery. And it's a mystery in which it's withheld, although the central event happens right at the beginning of it. But this little girl is also your mother. Now, you're an art critic. You've written two books to do with art about Velasquez and about self-portraiture. What was it that made you suddenly want to tell a family story?
3: Um, it was because my mother is, she was 93 last week and she she is an artist, my father was an artist and as I've said in the book I, I've been thinking about this um, strange event that happened on this beach all my life or at least since I ever heard of it which was actually quite late in my mother's life and certainly in mine because she didn't discover she'd been kidnapped until she was 60 years old and her curiosity about it has I suppose ebbed away as she's got older she didn't really know what had happened she tried to find out and she wrote about her early years beautifully in a a memoir of her own which is partially extracted throughout the story that I've told it was a 21st birthday present that she wrote for me it was what I wanted for my birthday so as she has got older her curiosity has arced and, and waned and I Loving her as much as I do, I've always wanted to know really what happened on the beach that day. The reading you asked me very kindly to, to give just now is a picturing. Obviously, I was not there. This is 1929. But i turning it and turning it in my head, as anybody does with a puzzle. You picture the scene. Everybody does this with mysteries. But I suppose... In my case, I felt that I could look at photographs in the family album and perhaps see more in them than I had before. Um, My mother's looked at them and known them so well, she perhaps doesn't see them so closely. And little tiny clues in these photographs began to make me think that the absolute certainty with which everyone believed they knew who'd kidnapped her that day was wrong.
4: So she went missing for five days. I mean, absolutely hideously traumatic for her mother, but was found alive and well and dressed in a different set of clothes in a house locally.
3: Yes, and obviously the fact that she was not able to remember this event... That also had to have something to do with why it was so local, why it was so mysterious to me. You know, if we knew that somebody had taken her who knew her, perhaps, that would make some sense. That's what we all thought had happened. Perhaps it is what happened. If you read the book, you will find it is indeed what had happened. But which person took her and why they took her, all of this seemed very complicated. And she had had a life until the age of three in another village, in this remarkably flat land, this county where, you know, there's barely a sort of hedge and hardly a tree and, you know, flatter even than Norfolk and so on. And this little village in which these events happened, Chapel St Leonard's, was very close to Another village, very close to another village, as it would turn out, where she'd had another life um, before the age of three. This much we knew. We all knew this when she discovered that she was not who she thought she was, first of all at the age of 40, and then again changing the story at the age of 60. But for me, there always seemed to be some aspect of this tale that must explain her character, her nature, her attitude to life, her strange detachment from certain kinds of uh, world her cleaving to the family she had my brother and I my my father and so on and I felt they probably did all go back to whatever happened in those early years so that's that was another motivation for writing
4: so part of it is a, about the way that trauma is absorbed and passed on through family, so you talk about how you're both very socially an- anxious, yes. which is one of the <laughs> things that you attribute take back to this sort of foundational event. but it's not a sad
3: book It's oh, an I'm incredibly, so incredibly loving book that. <laughs> um, it, it is a sad story in its if I were to give it in one sentence, we'd all agree it was practically a tragedy, and anyone reading it will. I think feel that a, a great deal of the time, but absolutely delighted that you think that, Claire, because I hope that the book is the exact opposite, that when you get to the end and find out what had really happened and and so forth, what you would learn from it is that no matter how deeply traumatic what happened was for my mother and for all of the characters involved in this story at this time and this kind of little tiny fraction of English coastline and so on, out of it came a sort of rebirth. She grew, she departed from um, what was essentially a kind of prison because her, her parents, the mother on the beach that, day, Vito Vito Elston, who will turn out actually I'm not giving everything away here by saying this, to be her adoptive mother, though she doesn't know that until she's quite old. These people lived in this tiny little row of, you know, two up, two down cottages, sort of marooned in a field near the seashore. And my mother was never allowed out. She wasn't allowed to visit the village. She wasn't allowed to play with other children. There was a swing in the garden, which her father had made for her. And only at the sort of zenith point of this swing, uh, as it rose up, could she see over the hedge and look at this kind of castle of sort of storybook characters coming and going, the shepherds and the cowherds and the dairyman and the butcher and so on, and see another life beyond, beyond the hedge. It's clear to anyone listening to this and certainly to me that something of this terribly oppressive claustrophobia in which he lived, never allowed out, you know, the curtains shut before dusk falls and so on, must have been to do with his kidnap. They clearly didn't want this ever to happen again. But the lengths to which they went I think created in her the social anxiety you mentioned and certainly a very profound claustrophobia which she still suffers.
4: She was taken out of school at 16 by her very overprotective father and um, put into work in the local post office. Absolute nightmare. Yes. <laughs> I, really, I mean, at that stage you think, oh my goodness, this is really a, a really sad story. And then along comes this art teacher yes. called Thea. Called uh, Thea, And yes.
3: Thea... It's the name of your daughter. Yes, I absolutely had to call my daughter after this wonderful woman. Um, so many people, if not all of us just now in this studio, and, but out there listening to this, so many people have had their lives absolutely turned about by a teacher. Teachers are, you know, they can change your entire existence. And this particular teacher was a woman who um, had seen that my mother could draw brilliantly, but, you know, was stuck behind the glass in this little dark dingy corner of this windowless general stores in the village which is still standing and still kind of horrifyingly claustrophobic in its own right double claustrophobia by now I guess and she had seen that my, my mother's drawing was was very beautiful so she managed to winkle her out of this little kind of hamlet and get her to Skegness past Billy Buttons along the coastline to Skegness where she was allowed to do evening classes so she would you know cycle off past the sea down past Buttons to the class where Thea taught her Thea Downing and she would come back the next morning and be in the post office you know behind the counter again for quite some time in her life and then eventually this teacher comes to visit my grandfather with these marvellous drawings and she absolutely understood the way to free my mother was to flatter him so she puts these drawings down and more or less says you know look at the talent you've passed on here this is you know and so on and he very grudgingly allowed her to go first to Nottingham College of Art and then eventually to Edinburgh where she got a scholarship to Edinburgh College of Art where she met my father and here we all are now. The
4: technique that you use for this it's really unusual I've never read a memoir like it your mother is still alive but as you say she's decreasingly interested in the story all the principal players are dead apart from a few villagers who don't want to talk about it to you so you piece it together through photographs and yes. pictures yes. which I think is, is was sort
3: of utterly joyful and it's so <laughs>
4: clever it's a piece of visual detective work you do
3: the only thing I had Claire really for a very long time was my mother's wonderful tales of her childhood which all appear in this book as she wrote them but the kind of illuminated treasury for me was the photograph album which accompanied these pictures so you can picture I'm sure a very small black leather photograph album from the 1930s you know with gold lettering, snapshots merrily on the front a book of doom, frankly if ever there was one, black pages you know, the old kind of, you know, transparent corners that you stuck things into the albums. The pictures in the book are not even as big as a credit card. They're box brownie images, black and white tiny little things. There are only 22 pages in this album half of them were empty and only a very few photographs and the photographs I had never really thought about this until I tried to work out what had really happened to my mother. And I mean really in the sense we all mean it, not just who was on the beach that day, but what really happened in her being. And I looked at these photographs again and again, and she very evidently is being posed in them. And he was a terrific photographer, my my grandfather. He's the only person allowed the camera. That much became obvious to me quite early on because my mother is there and sometimes her mother is there, but he is never in them. So every photograph implies the photographer. Who's standing here taking the photograph? Always George, beloved with box brownie in hand and so on. Then I began to think, well, why is Vida, his wife, why is she not in them? Why are there no pictures before the age of three? Well, anyone listening to this will have worked that out by now, but I didn't really know. And why do they stop when she's about 13 years old? And why is half of the album empty? Those are not questions we had somehow ever asked of her, and she had never thought about them. But half a tiny album empty is quite a significant thing. There wasn't even a picture of her, you know, when she was going off to university to study art or anything. So I'd look and look and look, and I took what I think... Now anybody would do, um, which is, you know, you could take a jeweler's loop or a magnifying glass or something really, really refined and look very closely at these miniature images. And the more I looked at these things, the more I noticed they were beautifully composed. So that told me a lot about my grandfather, who was utterly disparaged as a figure in this story. He was a travelling soap salesman. My mother hated him and changed her name to kind of have no association with him. And she clearly had never thought anything of him except that he was a very cruel figure uh, who'd imprisoned her but the more I looked at the pictures and I suppose this is where you know my profession comes into this as as an art critic for for the observer but but anyone can do this and this is sort of I suppose the campaign of the book is to make people look again at family albums very hard to do with you know the billions of shots in an iPhone now but if you look at the narratives those are books They're mounted in books in those days so they are a form of narrative of their own and you turn the pages and anyone can do this. Who's not in the picture? Who's taking the photograph? Why is Uncle Ed here when he should be in India? Why are there no members of the family living in the next village in this shot and so on? And every picture can be questioned and interrogated in that way and I kind of hope everyone will do this with their own family albums because even a happy story, many things will emerge that way
4: to put a bit of detail into this one of the pictures the clue you find in one of these teeny little pictures is that there are tulips in it therefore it must have been at a different time of year to the time of year that in family law it was assumed to have been
3: absolutely clear and that is something so easily overlooked um you know why would anybody be looking at the flowers it's the photograph of a child the child is my mother there are copies of this photograph in different places but All of the people who've ever looked at this photograph have always assumed, as you say, it was a certain year in a certain place. But that's the most simple, basic thing. Um, I think it's something now we would do much more because we look at images much more, I think, than we used to. But the tulips... I, for a long time I thought, can they really be tulips? Because it's supposed to be a different you know, season and so on. And colorization again, something I think we're all very... Well, I certainly am very compelled by. I did my own little bit of colorizing, as anyone can. You look at an image, you, it's a very simple thing to do. You look at a black and white image, the sky is this colour, the skin is this colour. These are two basic facts that you always know. If there's grass in the picture, you know that's green. So you make your tonal evaluations from those. And so the more I looked at it the more I thought, right, so those tulips are blue. No, they can't be blue. They're the same blue as the sky, the same tone as the sky. Could they be the colour of the dress? Are they no, it looks to me like they're they're more like of a pink. They definitely are tulips, they're not a different flower. There are lilies of the valleys there and I can see those are those will be white because there's a cloud up and so on. So definitely it is spring and definitely if it's spring, she's older than they think she is and she's in a different house. So then, of course, I did do the thing that we do, which is to get in a car and go there and, you know, find this spot, which is, you know, all research is the most delightful thing anyone can do. You know? And I did find the tree and I did find the bank where the tulips were and I could absolutely prove my view that this picture showed a different world and a different life for my for my mother, who's at this point, by the way, also wearing a string of little kind of children's beads you know but I can tell they cost a bit more than they might have cost and that makes me think about someone who might have given them to her and what money they might have had and so on so I I think all albums can be mined this way and even if you think you know everything because your ancestors have passed down the information check again, think again, look closer the back of photographs frequently has Margot and Joan and Fred well they're not Margot and Joan and Fred they're Margot and Joan and Stephen as it turns out and check every time what you were looking at in those albums because often even the stories that are wrong are throwing up truths of their own, the truth of the untruth if you like you mentioned a, a traumatic
4: event that happened when she was thirteen. What is that traumatic event? What what happened to change everything?
3: She was going by now. She's finally allowed out to go to school, and she's on a bus, a little green single-decker bus, trundling through the you know the flatlands to Skegness and back. And she was on this bus on the way home. I guess there were probably about 15 children on the bus and two or three adults, and one of the adults stood up on the bus and came down the aisle towards her. And as she remembers it, very much a sort of, you know, an early 1930s woman in long black clothes with a sort of battered hat and her shopping and so on. And she came to my mother, who'd seen her before many times, and held up a tiny photograph which showed herself as a very young child and infant, and said to my mother, Your grandmother wants to see you. And my mother was absolutely horrified. Even now she still dreams about this moment, because she didn't have a as far as she knew, she didn't have a grandmother. She writes about it in this her account of it's in the book, that she turned away as if from great madness and or shame or something very revolting, because she had no idea how to react to this appalling intervention in her life and it turned out that later on that everybody on that bus, I think without exception every single person on that bus, the driver, the woman obviously, her companion and all the children, knew who that supposed grandmother was and why this woman had approached her. And my mother didn't know and I find this very tragic and she didn't you know. know until she was 60 it's it is such she didn't an extraordinary story and, until she was 60 and she didn't know who the woman on the bus was until I told her last year <laughs> and actually I didn't know it all goes to the strange unknowing this condition of unknowing in which my mother has lived and since the book came out quite a few people have written to me to talk about her very beautiful I think phrase for herself she goes home to the house she asks her mother her mother says absolutely nothing they hasten to get the father the father comes home they sit in the parlour knee to knee you know the cold underused parlour that we can all folkloric parlour they say to her you know you are never to talk to that woman ever again and clearly she had not uttered a word and it was very puzzled that she appeared to be being reproved so strongly for something she hadn't done, at this point they explained to her that they rather sort of charitably taken her in. And that is the cataclysmic moment for her because they clearly did not say that they wanted her, they liked her, they loved her, that she mattered to them, that there was a good reason for her appearance in their house or anything. And she felt this sort of great severing in her life between these people who clearly didn't seem to want her and herself, and the people who've written to me have, have spoken very much of that moment in the book, people who've had any experience like that, which is, of course, as we know, millions of people. It was handled so terribly badly. You know, that She felt unmoored. She says, I felt unmoored, I belong to no one now. And I suppose that brings me back to the reason why my brother and I mattered so much to her. because She called she you felt your most,
4: her most precious possessions, which you have a bit of problem with. I,
3: I do, because it sort of spoke of um, ownership in some way that I, as a teenager myself, found, found sort of rather hard to deal with. But And it was really only when I was writing this book, Claire, that I actually thought I, I finally understood what she meant by that. Because to belong... I mean, we say, you are my love, or, you know, I'm yours, or, you know... And I don't know why I bridled so much at being called a possession because actually all this kind of grammar all these pronouns that we use this kind of speech all of it is about loving someone and therefore using these terms that seem to relate to ownership and why not my pet my darling whatever but I didn't like it as a child and I did feel sometimes myself when I was growing up that she was forever with me and that she she wanted to be with her children all the time, which is still the case um, very much. I mean, I think that's very common as people grow older that the only people they really want to see are their children and um, their grandchildren and so on. I think that's common. Right? So. Can, can I just bring you back to
4: George, her father? You're very hostile to George. The book is very hostile to George. But George is fascinating because George is an artist and you see him through his photographs. And there's one absolutely amazing photograph of Vida... In which she looks—it looks like a a vermeer still life. I mean, it's astonishing. It's an aston— even in black and white on rough paper, it's astonishing.
3: I'm very pleased that you would think that. I mean, it's of course to me, it's very—the reproduction in the book is. kind of very weak compared to the actual magnificent image my mother has never thought that George took this photograph it's part of her, what I suppose you could call almost sort of disinformation to me, um, and you you rightly say that I was hostile to him I was, uh, very much so all my life until I came to think about him and to try to imagine the world from his point of view and this photograph was just the key for me it's a beautiful photograph of standing this is 1910 in a, a little kind of terraced house in Bradford when they were first married and th- she's standing at a window which is very much the Vermeer he'd never seen a Vermeer The peeling over an apple, she's peeling can- an apple and it, if, if you're thinking perhaps of the milkmaid in Vermeer with a, this beautiful sort of um, you know celestial light bathing the face in profile and the little table and this kind of theatre of objects on the table and she's turning very graciously and it's absolutely I think magnificent for Which which Um, then gives a sense that he could experience love, that he did have all. Totally, Yes. So you
4: could read this book in a completely different way or this situation as his tragedy. His
3: tragedy, exactly. And the photograph, again, I mean, I I really feel kind of compelled to get people to try to do this more with, with photographs because I've always thought this was some sort of master shot taken by some bloke, you know, professional photographer and so on didn't think about it very hard because our own lives do press upon us don't they you know we go on with our lives but looking at this photograph again I thought well It clearly isn't by a professional photographer because it's inside a house, which nobody did. I mean, there were, you know, very, very few in 1910. Hardly any photographs were taken inside because the light is very difficult to deal with inside compared to the big, diffuse light outdoors. And it's a tiny little poxy little kitchen, you know, with sort of a dripping tap and, you know, a peeling wall and just this one little window. But he has made the most fantastic job of um, veiling the light with a bit of muslin, opening doors here and there so that he can control the way she looks. And he's opened the door into the unused parlour at the front and, you know, he's just standing slightly over the threshold. And I actually did reconstruct it using those things that, you know, estate agents use, little laser rods, where if I did a little box version of it, I worked out where he was standing and how he used his camera and what kind of camera it must have been. And then I took it to the V&A, bless them, and asked if I was, you know, kind of going down the right track. And to my Great joy, and again, this is something that could happen to anybody's family photographs. They said, "This is a masterpiece." Did your, you know, was your grandfather an artist? And of course, I'd been thinking, "Yes, my grandfather was an artist. Uh, He wanted to be an artist." He He was, but then he ended up being a salesman. He could never make quite, and he had to work
4: into his old age because he couldn't make enough for them to live.
3: Exactly, and you know, we would never know what their aspirations were like if it weren't for some some of the things that the people of the past made. You know, a a beautiful box or a wonderful photograph or, you know, a piece of marvellous carpentry. All these things are lenses through which you can see more directly into the minds of these people you never met to know what it was they really wanted to do. And The Observer did my wonderful newspaper. The Observer did this fantastic thing for me and I think for my mother, very specifically for her, which is to take possibly the smallest image in this album, which is not much bigger than a stamp, really. And it shows my mother, my little, little mother, she's about three and she's on a little ferry bicycle and she's outdoors And this uh, background of a, something that looks like it might be a garage behind her opening up into darkness and so on. I couldn't really see it very well. Well, they blew it up. <laughs> the picture editor of the newspaper blew it up to the scale of the front of the new review of The Observer and he wrote to me and said, you know, what an amazing image. <laughs> the dense um, knowledge compressed in this tiny thing when we blew it up. It's marvellous, it's pictures. a magnificent photograph it's what he could do with his camera and I showed it to my mother who of course immediately recognised herself and said well who took that You know, well he did you know. but it's a marvellous photograph how could he have taken it because he was such a terrible man well because he wasn't necessarily which is again, look again, look again think about the people in your family in a different way and perhaps the story will change
0: Laura Cumming and Claire Armitstead. On Chapel Sands is published by Chatham Windus in the UK and by Scribner in the US as Five Days Gone. Next week, we'll be talking to Brian Catling about his latest novel, Earwig, and exploring maths and creativity with Karen Olsen. So if you have questions for them or thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee.
1: And me, Sean Kane.
0: And our producer, Ian Chambers, thanks for listening and goodbye.
4: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.